0: Hello, and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Reports podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Eleni, and I'd like to welcome our guest for today's episode, Dr. Dodi. Today, we will be discussing resilience, compassion, and mental health. Let's get into today's conversation. Dr. James R. Doty, MD, is the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University, which His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the fan- founding benefactor. He is on the board of a number of nonprofit and is the former chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation. Dr. Doty is the senior editor of the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science and is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. And that has now been translated into 36 languages. Dr. Doty is an investor, entrepreneur, and philanthropist, having given support to a number of charitable organizations, supporting peace initiatives and providing health care throughout the world. Welcome to the Trauma Mental Health Report, Dr. Doty. It's a pleasure having you.
1: Well, thank you, Laney. Uh, it's wonderful to be with you and to share a little bit of time while we're uh, in shelter in place.
0: Right. Um, I wanted to discuss um, about a little bit about your book, Into the Magic Shop. Uh, can you give our lis- listeners a little overview?
1: Sure. Uh, The full title is Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart. And uh, this is a memoir. It's not an autobiography. And it highlights different uh, events in my own life uh, that allowed me to overcome adversity. And I grew up in a uh, family environment in which my father was an alcoholic and my mother had had a stroke when I was a child and was paralyzed and had a seizure disorder. And uh, unfortunately was chronically depressed, attempted suicide multiple times. Neither of my parents had gone to college and uh, we were on public assistance, really uh, my entire uh, life growing up. As you can imagine, uh, uh, that is not the environment uh, typically in which one thrives uh, in life or is quote unquote successful. Um, I was filled uh, with a lot of uh, despair, anger, uh, insecurity, shame uh, as a child, and uh, as we know now, there's something called adverse childhood experiences, uh, which is an analysis of what happens when children grow up in these types of environments where there's alcohol and drug abuse, where there's violence, where there's mental illness, where there's poverty. And the reality is that in those environments, in most instances, uh, children are not able to overcome them. And as a result, uh, do not reach their full potential. And many of them end up with drug and alcohol problems, have difficulty uh, effectively working in society. And uh, it's a form of uh, constant trauma, which then turns into post-traumatic stress disorder And unless you have the tools to overcome that uh, you're constantly reliving that trauma and the result, certainly uh, you're in a lot of pain, uh, psychic pain and many people in those situations assuage that pain with drugs and alcohol, unfortunately. What happened for me though, was that at the age of 12 having all those emotions, which I mentioned, Uh, I had the uh, fortune to walk into a magic shop. And the owner wasn't there, but his mother was there. And she knew nothing about the magic in the store, but what she did know about was human beings. And uh, here I was, a scared 12 year old, and I began a conversation with her. But the first thing that struck me about her was that um, she had this radiant smile that embraced you. And as we know, what's important for all of us is to be in a place where we feel safe. And the mere nature of her embracing me with that smile and opening up immediately and actually treating me like I was her equal, not looking down at me like I was inferior, not treating me like a child, but actually being present as one human being to another. And as a result, it allowed us to have a real conversation And she was clearly quite intuitive and insightful, and she asked me a number of questions, and I actually answered honestly, which normally I would not do, uh, because I was ashamed of my background. Uh, After 20 or 30 minutes, uh, she uh, said to me, she said, you know, I'm here for another six weeks, and if you show up every day, I think I could teach you something that could really help you. And you have to remember, this was in the late 60s and the terms mindfulness neuroplasticity uh, were not used in any way uh, and um it was really quite extraordinary so i did show up every day for an hour or two and her and i spent time together and over that period of six weeks she taught me many critical things uh the first was to understand that uh i uh essentially um Always was in a trauma zone in the sense that I couldn't sit still. I was always looking around, waiting for something to happen because that was my environment. I never knew what was going to happen, either in regard to my father or to my mother. And as a result, I was constantly in this flight or fight mode. And when you're in that mode, you can't be present. Uh, You cannot think clearly. Your executive control areas are impaired. And uh, so the first thing she taught me is now considered a standard technique in mindfulness, which was to do a body survey and relax the body in association with the breathing exercise. And uh, I have to tell you, as a 12-year-old first starting that, uh, it was, seemed very strange. And here I am in a room with some woman in her 50s, a 12-year-old at the back of a magic shop doing what I thought were these stupid breathing exercises. But uh, she was patient with me. And uh, in a few weeks, I suddenly felt sort of something changing. What was changing was that I was now able to shift from this uh, fear mode to actually engaging my parasympathetic nervous system, which allowed me to relax, to think more clearly, to have access to my executive control function. From there, uh, she taught me, Uh, the reality that uh, um, this voice I heard in my head telling me that I wasn't good enough or smart enough uh, wasn't really real. Uh, And, you know, so many of us uh, have this ongoing negative dialogue uh, that we think is us. And uh, she taught me the reality that it's not us. And in fact, what we know from neuroscience now is that there's a tendency for negative things to stick to us because that's what allows us to survive. We recognize something negative, we prepare for it, we act accordingly. Unfortunately, the byproduct of that is that negative comments, uh, negative events in our life have a tendency to stick to us as well. And many times are not beneficial to us because when we hear these things that say we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're an imposter, what happens is we start to believe it. And if you believe something, uh, that becomes your reality, for good or for bad. And as a result, this incredible power we have within us uh, gets taken away from us. We give it away. Uh, And we become, if you will, a slave to these negative emotional states. And as a result, we don't reach our full potential because we don't believe we can. And what she made me understand that this was a false narrative for the reasons I just told you and that had nothing to do with me and the reality that each of us uh, deserves to be loved, to be cared for, to be embraced, and that we're all good at our core. And uh, once I understood that, she taught me a technique actually to change the dialogue to one of self-affirmation, acceptance, self-love. Because what happens then is you start seeing the world in a different way. Because when you're inside your head and you're telling yourself all of these things and beating yourself up, you start looking at the world in a distorted way. And you become hypercritical of people. You become not accepting. You become suspicious. And uh, so when I changed my attitude, uh, it changed how people interacted with me because as a species, we have this incredible ability to look at people and uh, understand their emotional state. And when people people are fearful, when they're anxious, they're hostile, we have a tendency to respond to that. And I tell people that when I changed how I interacted with the world, the world changed how it interacted with me. And that changed everything. Additionally, uh, I did not understand, uh, if you will, how to manifest my intention. And what I mean by that is all of us have goals and aspirations, but oftentimes, uh, they're not concrete in our mind. They're sort of scattered here and there. And what she taught me was what's now commonly thought of, uh, typically in association with athletes, you know, how to visualize things. And uh, when you talk to sports psychologists, they will tell you that athletes see every step along the way. They have a clear vision of it. They repeat it in their head over and over. And the same ability each of us has in terms of anything we want to manifest. And uh, in my instance, what she, uh, Ruth was her name, this woman, uh, taught me was that to try to use every aspect of my senses to engage that visualization, and that would mean writing a list of goals and aspirations. It would mean reading it and reading it then aloud. Then it would require me to actually sit with it and think about what I would be like in that particular situation, and uh, each of those things has a tendency to embed it in your subconscious, because once it's embedded in your subconscious, you become more attuned to opportunities or possibilities that allow you to manifest. As an example, each of us, if we were at a party and there are tons of people talking, if we hear our name from across the room, we turn because that is embedded. Our identity is embedded so deeply within us. Uh, and the same is true of these uh, intentions. As an example, uh, you know, I see a lot of patients and I'll meet a patient and they'll have a diagnosis and I'll say, you know, your diagnosis is X. And they'll say, doctor, I have never heard of that. Uh, you know, uh, I didn't even know such a thing existed. And then I'll see them a few months later and they'll go, the most amazing thing has happened. I've run into five people who have the same thing I do. And the reason is, is because that powerful Uh, diagnosis, you know, their anxiety and all of that was sitting there, it goes into their subconscious, and now they'll be just walking along or be in a store, they'll hear somebody mention something like that, and then they'll turn to it, and they'll be going to get conversation, and suddenly, all of these things that are moving in the background that they were not aware of come together, and this is the nature of um, manifestation of your intention. We receive, in terms of sensory input, about 3 million bits of information a second. But we're only able to process 50 to 100. So there's all this stuff going on around us that we miss. And when you embed something in your intention, then that's one of those 50 to 100. And so you turn to that when uh, something connected to it occurs, or there's a possibility of, or somebody's talking about it. And those were the lessons that she taught me and that allowed me to uh, be with you here today.
0: And do you think your life would have been different if you hadn't met Ruth today?
1: Well, undoubtedly, it would have been different. Now, some people could argue that, look, the nature of your personality is such, and you're bright enough that probably you would have been successful regardless. And that might be true. I, I don't know. But, you know, if you look at uh, so many people uh, who grew up in my situation, what happens is that at some point you give up, right? Because you don't see a path out. And that's the tragedy. Uh, You know, if you don't have resources, finances, mentors, access – then it looks like you're standing in front of a wall uh, that you cannot climb over, you cannot walk through and there's no door. And uh, if that's the case, then you just say, you know, I'm done. And it's that giving up and it's that feeling of hopelessness that then allows other things to manifest in your brain. Again, I'm not good enough, Uh, I'm not worthy. And this is when you're susceptible to drugs, alcohol, or other negative uh, actions and behaviors. And then of course, uh, there's so many others in that position. So the people in those positions are the people who you spend time with. And typically, uh, the people who you spend time with are the people who you end up modeling your behavior uh, for good or bad.
0: Great, thank you for answering that. and. You're the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research. Can you tell me why you chose to um, research altruism and compassion?
1: Well, what we've been talking about in some senses is initially compassion for self uh, and self-acceptance, self-affirmation. And the reason is, if you're not kind to yourself, it's very hard for you to be kind to other people. And when you're able to show self-compassion, you realize that others are suffering. And because when you're inside your head, you're—it's in some ways, it's very selfish. You're not looking at other people's problems. You're only concerned about your own problems. Yet we know when you care for other people, when you connect with other people, that is one of the best ways to overcome your own issues. And so uh, after I had achieved certain levels of success, this question in my mind was uh, what causes people to care and what stops them from caring? And when I use care, I mean uh, compassion. And compassion is the recognition of another suffering with a motivational desire to alleviate that suffering. Uh, and so I had left Stanford and when I came back in 2008, I decided I wanted to understand this on a deeper level, on a neuroscience level, physiology level. And so I began conversations with psychologists and neuroscientists. And the interesting thing was at that time, which was in 2008, uh, there was no interest in this topic from an academic perspective. And in fact, I was told that such investigations were really an academic dead end. Now, the fortunate thing was that I could fund the research myself which, for scientists, uh, getting funding for a project is uh, a thing that motivates them. And as a result, I began working with this scientist initially on some level, uh, not enthusiastically, but after we began this work, the data was so positive showing the power of compassion in regard to improving one's mental state and their physiology that two of the individuals changed their research direction to focus on compassion as their academic interest. And as you mentioned earlier, this work ultimately resulted in the um, creation of the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science. And Oxford University Press is one of the most prestigious academic presses. And it shows you how over this period of time, this area of research has dramatically expanded because the research is absolutely crystal clear. When you practice compassion, herself when you can practice compassion for others the reality is that's our default mode that's when our physiology works at its best and we've gone from excuse me the center that i run uh, which was initially the first in the world and that's not to say other people weren't exploring compassion but this was the first center focused on that uh now they're literally hundreds and hundreds around the world research papers are being published uh monthly. And uh, if you look at the trajectory as an example of, uh, you know, 30 or 40 years ago with mindfulness, which John Kabat-Zinn introduced to America, if you will, the research was minimal, uh, you know, it just went along. And then there was this absolute explosion because the science confirmed uh, what he had uh, uh, felt uh, was the case. And uh, suddenly, mindfulness is everywhere. And I think what we found now is the same thing has happened with compassion, in that there's this ever increasing amount of data that demonstrates the power of compassion. And when it's combined with a mindfulness practice, a self compassion practice, a compassion for others uh, aspect, then that's actually the most powerful type of meditation there is. And that's a a practice actually we've developed at Stanford, which is called compassion cultivation training. And this has been uh, studied uh, extensively. And there's an immense amount of data that demonstrates the value proposition of that. And in fact, it's now taught all over the world.
0: Great. Amazing. And um, in terms of altruism, do you think true altruism exists or do people lack altruistic on the basis of self-interest?
1: Well, I think that's a hard thing to answer. Uh, The reality is, unless, as an example, if you were to give your money away uh, and not know where it went, uh, uh, except for the fact that it went to help others, or maybe you didn't even know, then that's uh, certainly maybe true altruism. Because... Uh, you know, as long as you get any feedback, uh, you know, you're not, the reality is that the mere act of being of service or giving to another uh, has a physiologic effect on you. The other thing that people, though, get confused about sometimes is what altruism means. Altruism is, uh, altruism is not philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Okay? And the reason I make that distinction is, You know, somebody will give some money away and they'll say, well, see, I'm very altruistic. Well, actually, altruism is putting yourself at risk for another's benefit. And as an example, altruism is if uh, you're walking across a bridge and there's a river beneath and you see a child in the river, you jump in to save the child. You are putting yourself at risk to help that child. Giving money away uh, is not necessarily putting yourself at risk. It can be. As an example, uh, you'll notice in my book, uh, uh, I was in a particular uh, position in life where uh, in a period of six weeks, I lost $78 million and was bankrupt and in debt about $3 million. And in the face of that, I gave $30 million of stock away. Right. So I did an action that uh, was obviously profoundly against my self interest. But that being said, uh, I benefited. How did I benefit? Because I set up health clinics all over the world. Uh, I uh, set up blood banks, uh, programs at Stanford and and endowed chairs, uh, um, uh, set up research programs. And so is that true altruism? Not even then, because again, I knew what happened to it and it benefited. But that being said, I put myself at risk, great risk. And I gave it all away in the face of me being in a situation where I had nothing. Um, so, uh, the interesting thing though, nowadays, uh, many people will quote, be philanthropic, but really if you compare, how much they give to how much they have, oftentimes it's nothing. And uh, it fascinates me to watch people like this because somehow in their mind, they convince themselves that they're doing something for good. But in many ways, it's simply a way to assuage the uh, reality that uh, uh, they have so much Others have so little, and by just giving a little bit away, they think it it makes it all okay, Uh, and it does it.
0: And where do you see the future of mental health care in 10 years' time?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, uh, Right now, as you know, we have an epidemic of stress, anxiety, and depression, and In many ways it's a manifestation of the reality that our evolution as a species has not kept up with our evolution in technology and modern life. And as a result, many demands are made on us of which we are ill-suited in many ways. Uh, With technology, the increased pace of life, artificial lighting, which extends the hours of the day, if you will. Uh, Being in uh, situations where we're not with our quote-unquote tribe, all of these things uh, lead to a feeling of disconnect and fear and anxiety. Uh, So I certainly think that, and data has shown, that with certain types of mental training practices that can help you emotionally regulate and um, uh, deal with some of the fear and anxiety, Uh, And I think as we learn more, uh, we will learn more techniques that will allow us to be more likely to thrive in this present environment. Now, that being said, uh, I think one of the fundamental problems is unrestrained capitalism. The problem is that in many parts of Western society... You have uh, institutionalized poverty, institutionalized racism, and inequality that benefits those at the top and results in those in the bottom rungs of society uh, being permanently in the bottom rungs of society. And the reason is that uh, it's structurally unfair. And uh, the wealthy uh, have access to information, relationships, and connections that allow them to thrive. And as you also notice, uh, many of these people do not say, I have enough, and then spend their time focused on uh, helping others. Unfortunately, uh, again, because of a wiring problem in our brains, those who have a lot they don't look down and say, you know, gosh, I'm so grateful, I'm thankful. Look at so many. I mean, half the world's population lives on $2.50 a day. I'm so blessed. And the reality is, you know, there I have no right to have attained this incredible wealth. It was strictly, frankly, for many people by accident. It wasn't because of just them. It was because of where they were in society oftentimes or just the nature of the structure of society. So instead of sitting they're having gratitude, what are they doing? They're looking up saying, you know, that person has a more expensive jet than mine. Their yacht is 50 feet longer than mine. You know, they have a Birkin bag and I don't have a Birkin bag. I have only three houses and they have five houses. And it's this ever increasing need to have more, but what the, this desire to have more hides is a profound emptiness. And this profound emptiness is a manifestation that is in all of us. And the only way that emptiness goes away is when you get down to that core level of who we are. And that core level of who we are is when we connect with others, when we are of service, when we're generous, when we're kind, and when we have gratitude. All of us are going to die, and having all the money in the world when you die and having a big yacht is not going to mean anything to anyone. What will mean something to people, and this is an interesting quote uh, by someone whose name I can't remember at the moment. It says, you know you've lived a good life when your children – if they think of the terms integrity, gratitude, generosity, think of you.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And that is so cool. I couldn't agree with you anymore. Yeah. Um, we live in a society where we just not, we can't tame the hunger. it's, it's interesting. And it is difficult to find gratitude and something you have to practice, I think, most of your life in order to get there. And um, I would like to thank you so much today for joining us at the Trauma Mental Health Report. It has been a really great pleasure and um, I'm very honored to have you here. And um, I wish you all the best in your research and being part of all these uh, amazing philanthropic uh, endeavors. So thank you very much.
1: Sure. And, you know, I think your listeners, obviously it is very hard to overcome some of these difficulties. And uh, um, the reality is so many people, though, when they're in these situations, they're afraid to tell anybody. Yet -hmm. what happens is, though, if you do reach out, Again, that's what we're made for, to care for others. And feeling ashamed of reaching out or saying you're suffering, actually uh, you think people aren't gonna care for you. And every experience I've had where I've suffered and needed help and asked for it, someone was there for me. And uh, so one should not be afraid uh, to reach out. And uh, the other thing is that each of us, no matter our situation, Uh, Every day has the capacity to make one person's life better. And oftentimes when you yourself are suffering, going out and doing an act for another person will change uh, your thinking, especially when they respond to you, which invariably they will in a positive way. So the best thing we can do for our own mental health is to care for others.
0: Thank you very much. You've reached the end of this episode with the Trauma Mental Health Report podcast. Thanks for joining us. Connect with us at trauma.blog.yorku.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. See you at the next episode.